This is WCNY's The Capitol Press Room, and we're turning our attention to the state's court system, and specifically how best to prepare this Byzantine judicial system for the future. To do that, we're joined in the studio by attorney Hank Greenberg, past president of the New York State Bar Association and chair of the Commission to Reimagine the Future of New York Courts. Welcome back to the show, Hank. Thank you for having me, David. So I want to start our conversation by talking about a transition that we began to see out of necessity uh, during the pandemic, which is an embrace of technology by the judiciary in order to meet remotely. When you think about the future, how should technology and the Internet more specifically be better utilized by the court system? Well, it's transforming the practice of law and the operation of courts in ways that prior to COVID, nobody really thought about. There was a trend line moving in that direction, but then COVID accelerated everything. So the first two months of the pandemic, you saw more change in the legal profession than you had seen in 200 years, and that's not hyperbole. All of a sudden, people stopped thinking about courts as physical places by necessity Mm -hmm. and began to think about them as services. And we saw the emergence of online court proceedings, the word Zoom, we used to think meant move quickly, all of a sudden, you know, became a common term. I don't think like a rubber band post-COVID, we're going to snap back to where we were. The changes are being institutionalized, and courts across the nation, including New York's, are embracing it. Do you think there needs to be standardization of how we utilize technology in our courts, or should there be leeway among judges, say, to decide if they're going to allow for remote proceedings or video cameras, for example, in their courtrooms? More uniformity from court to court to court is going to become necessary. Uh, You mentioned I chair the Commission to Reimagine the Future of New York's Courts, and we had a working group that produced a report on the pandemic experience, especially with respect to technology. The report made a number of recommendations, one of which was to create more uniformity in how you have online court proceedings, how you use virtual technology in order to adjudicate cases. And what about the buzzword of the day, artificial intelligence? Is that something that we need to be thinking about in our judicial system, whether it's briefs written by artificial intelligence or some other form of AI or or tech that's learning that I just haven't even thought of yet because I'm not that smart? Yeah, no, you're really smart, and that's a really good question. Let me put it this way. I think in the near term, what you're reading and hearing about in terms of AI is overstated. In the long term, it will have a dramatic effect, as it will all of society, of course, You've heard people refer to robot judges. That's not going to happen. Or even robot lawyers. You know, the technology isn't there yet. But, you know, it doesn't take a prophetic gift to know that 20, 30, 50 years in the future as technology and its advances continue to increase, that there will be significant impact. And the other thing about a lot of the fears that are being expressed about what AI could do to the justice system One of the concerns that I have is we spend so much time talking about it, it will become a convenient excuse not to embrace all the many ways technology can begin to address these systemic, seemingly ineradical problems like access to justice. I think technology holds enormous promise in terms of the administration of justice. 
So you referenced there the idea of access to justice. And when it comes to our civil courts in particular, what do you see as the problem right now in terms of access to justice? How would you describe the scope of things? And where do you see us going right now based on the trends that are in place right now? 99 out of 100 lawyers will tell you we have an access to justice problem. But what so many people in the know don't fully embrace is that roughly three quarters of civil cases, one of the parties is unrepresented by a litigant. We have increasingly what scholars are referring to as lawyerless courts. One study a couple of years ago indicated that in many courts, their dockets, 90% of the cases people are appearing unrepresented. So you're talking across the nation about millions and millions of people in court proceedings involving vitally important issues like debt collection, family violence, eviction proceedings, in which one side has a lawyer, and it's usually the person who can't afford it, and the other side doesn't have a lawyer. Think about this. Last year, the World Justice Project's Rule of Law Index said that the United States ranked 115 out of 140 nations in the world in terms of accessibility and affordability of civil justice. This in a nation that prides itself on the idea of equal justice under law. Another study last year indicated that 92% of persons who are indigent have to navigate their legal problems without the benefit of an attorney. More Whereas we've long known that particularly for those who are poor, um, getting a lawyer is something they can't afford. Increasingly, that includes the middle class. They can't afford a lawyer. For many people to go to a lawyer and you know, sort of say, I want a will written, and then they're told it'll cost thousands of dollars or at least a few thousands of dollars for them to get the will written, say, never mind, I'll go online and see if I can find a form. So the access to justice um, um, crisis, often referred to as a justice gap, is, in my estimation, a justice chasm widening into an abyss through which millions and millions of people across the nation are falling. So you outlined some situations in which you really wouldn't want to go into a civil proceeding without an attorney. Are the bulk of the cases, though, where people are going without representation, where they're essentially being self-represented, are those serious matters? Or do the percentages that we're talking about, do they include things like small claims court? And thus, they're maybe not the biggest cases in the world where you might not need an attorney. The problem is occurring in those courts which involve for the average person the most vital personal issues, family court, housing courts, if you go to those courts, for example, especially in Manhattan, these are courts which are packed with people. And most of those people are unrepresented by counsel. So the real-world problems of the vast majority of the public in New York and across the nation are precisely, precisely the kinds of cases for which we see so many people unrepresented by counsel. There are other kinds of courts, for example, the commercial division of the New York courts and across the nation. Most of those parties are represented by counsel. Those are corporations suing one another. And there are certain categories of cases where people can obtain a lawyer. For example, personal injury cases. Those are cases in which 
the attorneys that represent people who allegedly suffered an injury of some kind owing to another person's negligence, those lawyers typically uh, represent their clients based on a contingency fee arrangement. So the client doesn't have to pay any money to them. Their compensation comes from the final judgment in the case. But for most of the kinds of real-world problems, again, guardianships, family court matters, eviction proceedings, these are the categories of cases where people are increasingly finding it impossible to be represented by counsel. Well, what is the solution then to the struggle to actually access uh, attorneys? Is it that case that we need more attorneys? Do we need to subsidize legal services? Do we need to have work that's not done necessarily by uh, attorneys and maybe have, say, paralegals fill some of these gaps because they're more affordable? Well, I I can tell you, since the time I graduated law school in the 1980s, there have been two solutions that have been deployed. Very laudable, certainly valuable, increasing uh, civil legal assistance to legal aid societies so they have more funds and resources in order to represent the indigent, more free uh, pro bono assistance, free assistance by lawyers for persons, right? Very laudable, very good. It's not getting it done by itself. And legislatures in New York and across the nation have, do we need more evidence? Not going to appropriate nearly enough money to close the justice chasm. A number of states are exploring all sorts of regulatory changes, creative solutions. Some of them are quite controversial, others less so. I do think technology and the uses of technology are going to provide all sorts of interesting and creative ways to make, if not necessarily legal representation, readily accessible to those who can't afford it, information and assistance to help them. And also, I think courts, especially those lawyerless courts, where most of the litigants appearing before them are unrepresented by counsel, have to rethink the way they actually handle those cases. Think about it this way. The model of the American justice system that you know we all know from television and otherwise, right, popular culture understands, is that you have, it's the adversarial system of justice. Two sides represented by skilled counsel fighting it out in a courtroom, and from that process, the truth or injustice emerges. Well, what happens when one of the two sides isn't represented by skilled counsel? That puts judges in a difficult position because, on the one hand, they can't represent the unrepresented party. But how they approach that case, how they handle those kinds of litigation are clearly different from when you have, you know, superstar lawyers representing well-heeled clients in courtrooms. So technology... Courts thinking about how they administer justice in different ways in light of this reality. You know, here's how I sort of think about it. You know, it's the the boiling frog effect, right? You know, you put a frog in a pot of water and it's lukewarm, but you raise the temperature over time. And the water temperature increases, increases, increases until it's too late for the frog. Well, that's largely what's happened with the justice gap. We've known there is a problem, but it's been growing exponentially. And by the way, David, it's going to keep growing unless we begin to address these kind of systemic trends. So I'm hopeful about the future. Like I said, I think technology affords all sorts of potential opportunities, courts reimagining how they handle these kinds of situations. And hopefully legislatures in New York and across the nation are more generous in terms of recognizing the problem. 
And what about that idea, though, that maybe not every situation requires an attorney? So, for example, like writing a will, do we necessarily need to have an attorney do that? Is that something where we can turn to someone with about three years of law school to write a will and thus find it a cheaper alternative? Well, a number of states are exploring ways to identify certain kinds of legal services that historically constitute, let's say in New York, the practice of law for which you have to have a license in order to provide that service. There are other states that are looking at certain kinds of functions that lawyers perform and saying, why do you have to go to law school for three years in order to be able to help people through those problems? Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example. The commission that I have the privilege of chairing, we wrote a report Uh, that dealt with um, family courts and the use of social workers in the family court context, right? Keep in mind, New York law says that only a lawyer can practice law. So certain kinds of conduct that would constitute the practice of law, a non-lawyer couldn't perform. We looked at what's happening in the family courts, and we saw that they could benefit immensely. Just imagine these deeply contentious interfamilial disputes playing out in a courtroom, that social workers could be of assistance to the court and recommended that. And very pleased to say the court system has embraced those recommendations. That's just one example. There may be other functions, and other states are looking at that. Right? We have more admitted lawyers in New York State than any other state in the nation, over 300,000. And that's a lot. I mean, some people might think that's too many. I don't. But it's clearly not enough to close the justice chasm. And after a quick break, we'll have more on the future of New York's courts with Hank Greenberg, chair of the commission, to reimagine the future of New York courts. Is your business, agency, or service interested in delivering your message to more than two dozen radio stations statewide carrying Capital Press Room? If so, visit capitalpressroom.org to contact our underwriting team. For listeners just joining us, we're continuing our conversation about the future of New York's courts. And our guest is Hank Greenberg, past president of the New York State Bar Association and chair of the commission to reimagine the future of New York's courts. Before the break, Hank, you were talking about access to the court system and specifically the civil system in New York, and you described it as a chasm. Is that chasm different sizes based on where you are in the state? Absolutely. Vast disparity in terms of the number of lawyers, depending on what county you're talking about. In the North Country, for example, you have some counties that have very few lawyers, which is one reason why the town justices in a number of these lightly populated counties are not lawyers. They're lay people. Those few lawyers that might be there, they have to make a living practicing law, right? They don't want to be a town justice. They can't handle those matters in front of those courts. So, oh, absolutely. The five boroughs of Manhattan, you know, have considerable number of lawyers, whereas St. Lawrence County, there are certainly lawyers, but far fewer in number. You mentioned the town justice issue, and whenever we hear or examine the reports that come out of the Commission on Judicial Conduct, they find that disproportionately, though, these town justices, these judges without a legal background are responsible for disproportionate share of misconduct. So what do you think about the idea that in the future, all judges should have a legal degree? This issue has been kicking around for at least since the 1920s when Al Smith was governor. Certainly part of the problem, particularly in upstate New York, particularly in communities that have few lawyers, is go find a lawyer that can do it. 
But on the other hand, I think the commission is right. The law is a complex field. And knowing the law, being skilled and trained in the law, having experience practicing law, having experience as a judge, deciding cases are really valuable. So going back to the idea of accessing the courts, there's a trend now that we're seeing, which is essentially circumventing the courts in civil matters, which is arbitration that is required by corporations if you want to engage with their services or their products. Is that a good trend? Is that something that's good because it provides some relief from the court system? Or does that represent some sort of denial of justice? It's good up to a point. Mm -hmm. People resolving their disputes without having to go to a court, that's a useful thing. I spend a lot of time talking my clients out of litigating because of the cost and the hardships. It's an ordeal. But what we are seeing, and it's another one of these trends that COVID is beginning to accelerate, is that because the civil justice system for many people costs too much, takes too much time, is incomprehensible to lay people, and at a step with the digital age, they turn to these alternative dispute resolution approaches. For people that might otherwise find themselves going to court, if they can resolve a case more cheaply and efficiently and satisfactorily, fine. But what we are seeing on a more systemic basis is that many people are signing these agreements with credit card companies, large entities that are requiring them to resolve any dispute through their internal processes that they run and operate, and essentially barring that person from going to small claims court. That's concerning. If we end up building this system that really isn't about justice. It's just about settling the case. It's not about the law. It's not about the rule of law. It's about resolving a dispute of some kind. And this is all happening outside of the public justice system. If over the long term, this becomes the predominant mode for resolving cases, that will absolutely impact the public justice system. And it'll lead to this other system that, again, really isn't about the consistency of outcomes and all the things that the rule of law gives us. And one of which, of course, is justice. Not every case should be resolved by trying to find the middle. Sometimes people are right and others are wrong. So then do we need to have state legislatures in New York or elsewhere step in and restrict the use uh, of these alternative dispute resolutions or at least put in some sort of safeguards to regulate how they're used to ensure that they are presenting some sort of level playing field? Well, my focus has been how the courts themselves deal with these issues and concerns. The movement, interestingly enough, towards alternative dispute resolution, the policies have largely, over many decades, come from court systems. You see, by the way, even in court cases, there are courts that In federal court, for example, every case that you would bring, the case in the civil case, it initially goes to a magistrate judge, and one of the issues on the checklist the magistrate judge will talk to the parties about is, can this case be settled? Fine. Good. The concern that I've identified and I've spoken about and and written uh, about as well is this for-profit, flourishing, rapidly growing private system of resolving disputes. So 
In the first sense, I think it, it, this is something that the judiciary needs to wrap its arms around because if, if this goes unchecked and this trend line continues to grow, that could have a deleterious impact on the rule of law and our public justice system. So then at this point, you as an individual or the commission to re-examine the future of New York court specifically aren't calling for the legislature to restrict the use of these alternative dispute resolution practices or calling for additional regulations of them? Well, I'm not, and our commission hasn't. But what I would say is a lot of what you and I are discussing, people in the know don't know. All forms of media think we have this thing called jury trials very frequently. That's not reality anymore. A recent study uh, by the Center of State Courts showed that anywhere between zero to one percent in change of civil cases that are brought are ultimately resolved by a jury determination. In criminal cases, 98 percent of criminal cases that are brought against accused persons are resolved not through jury trials, but through plea bargaining. So a number of these issues, right, the access to justice problem is, in fact, a crisis. Jury trials, uh, we really don't have them anymore. Public court systems outsourcing dispute resolution to this growing private sector. One of the things at least I'm trying to do, and I've spoken to judges at New York and across the nation about it, is to call their attention to these things. We're trained to follow precedent. It is small c, one of the most conservative professions of all, if not the most conservative. Lawyers, the bench and the bar, are almost never in the vanguard of change. And one of the things that at least I've been advocating is to recognize that change is the new normal, right? Just as change is the law of life, it has become the life of the law. Getting court systems to think about that and recognize that the acceleration in our lives that's been wrought by technology, right, put on steroids during COVID-19 has created for judges in terms of the operation of courts, lawyers in terms of the practice of law, what they thought they were doing for 200 years with very few changes is now being revolutionized. And I'm trying to call people's attention to that. Well, one of the things you just highlighted there was the tiny percentage of both civil and criminal cases that actually go before a jury of their peers. On the criminal side specifically, is there a percentage of cases that we should strive to have resolve in a jury decision, or is there anything wrong with having plea bargains? Well, like everything to an extreme, not good. But what's, uh, what's the sweet spot then? Well, look, uh, no one who hasn't committed a crime should ever be put in a position, ever be put in a position out of fear of an unjust result going into court and pleading guilty to something they didn't do, right? That should never happen. And yet we know on rare occasion it does. And those are cases in which, you know, if the people who are prosecuting the case feel they have sufficient evidence the defendant should be allowed to stand trial and defend themselves and let the jury make the determination. So this issue that you put your finger on is one that scholars have been debating for a long, long time, but they were debating it in an era when their jury trials were more prevalent. I actually think there should be more cases that go to trial 
do we have the capacity for that in terms of time and judges and attorneys to handle all those, though? Well, I think technology gives us the possibility of doing that. Where, where do we find the savings in time and personnel with, with technology? How does that make the difference? Well, I'm going to give you one obvious example, right? Before COVID, litigants and lawyers oftentimes would have to sit in a courtroom all day to wait for their case to be called. Mm-hmm. Couldn't do anything else. They had to spend the whole day. That was not only time-consuming for the lawyer, that was very expensive for their client who had to pay for the lawyer being there for potentially several hours. One of the things that virtual hearings has done is that you no longer have to spend a whole day, right? Lawyers use the phrase, and it's, I don't mean it to sound disparaging, but you'd often hear, you know, cattle calls. What was the idea there is that people have to just wait and wait and wait until their case is called, right? And this unfortunate phrase was used because it was an unfortunate phenomenon. So I think technology holds the ability to streamline, make more efficient, be able to do things more quickly than we could do before. That saves lawyers money. It saves clients money. It saves courts money. It frees judges up to have more time to actually think about cases and consider cases. And in terms of capacity of the judicial system, do we need to have more state Supreme Court judges? I think the legislature just this past session increased the number, and I have not heard anyone say that more are required. Uh, you know, but don't we have like court of claims judges filling in as like acting state supreme court judges? So essentially, people who weren't elected to that job filling in as a job that they right. are basically political appointees doing. Well, l- let me answer your question this way. You had my personal view. We need more family court judges. Mm-hmm. We need more housing court judges. You know, at the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about where the rubber meets the road for the vast majority of the population. It's in those courts with high-density dockets, right? That's clearly, in my, my personal view, where we need more judges. Is there a lot of demand in the court of claims space right now that you're aware of? Are a lot of people bringing cases that are eligible for those specific judges to hear? Well, the court of claims jurisdiction is limited primarily to cases brought against the state of New York in which monetary damages are sought. Right. I have not monitored, you know, the current docket. Uh, so I, I, I can't tell you whether that's, you know, the trend line is north or south. Well, every year it seems like we hear from the governor that she's appointing five or six people at least to the court of claims. And then it seems like they end up just serving as acting state Supreme Court justice. So as we think about the future, do we well, need to change that process? Well, I've been on record and an advocate for many, many, many years about court merger. Mm-hmm and rationalizing what is the most balkanized, complicated court system in America. Not an exaggeration. That's just the truth. We have 11 different trial courts, and no one but the cognoscente could explain to you or rationalize or logically tell you why that's so. Uh, But I've also been around Albany, uh, David, for as long as you, maybe even a little longer. I I think a few more years. A few more years, (laughs) okay. And, you know, I haven't seen any, you know, significant movement in terms of the necessary constitutional amendments. You know, so I think at least for me, accepting that as a reality, at least for the time being, it's why at least I've been focusing my attention and and, and the commission that I have the privilege of chairing has focused its attention on those things that we can make a difference. Well, we've been speaking with Hank Greenberg. He is the past president of the New York State Bar Association and chair of the commission to reimagine the future of New York courts. Hank, thank you so much, and good luck with the commission. It's a privilege to be with you. Thank you, David. 
Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information. Join us again for Capitol Press Room, a production of WCNY Connected, Syracuse.